Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. Today's guest is very special. Well, I mean, everyone is very special, but I was super duper excited to finally get to talk to Chris Grosso. After my interview with Sarah Beek that aired, I believe, August of 2018, I realized that she was actually in his last book, Dead Set on Living. And I'd reached out to her and said, hey, would you mind connecting me with Chris Grasso? And she's like, absolutely, he's the real deal. And so she connected us, and I'm so, so excited that we finally got to chat. So if you haven't heard of Chris Grasso, among many things, he is the podcast host of the Indie Spiritualist podcast on Ram Dass's network, the Be Here Now Network. And he's also a youth mental health group facilitator with Newport Academy, public speaker, writer, and author of Indie Spiritualist, Everything Mind, and Dead Set on Living. He writes for Revolver Magazine, Origin Magazine, and Huffington Post, and has spoken and performed at Wanderlust Festival, Celebrate Your Life, Yoga Journal Conference, Sedona World Wisdom Days, Kripalu, Sun Valley Wellness Festival, and more. I just finished the conversation with him, and... I'm feeling really sick today, P.S., and just probably about an hour before I did this interview, I was lying on the couch feeling like I was going to die, thinking, like, how am I going to get through this interview? But my husband was like, you're going to be able to turn it on. You're going to be fine. And as soon as I heard Chris's, there's a sunshine in his voice, which I wonder if he listens to this, if he's going to cringe at that because, (laughs) because he loves all things punk rock and sunshine is probably not very punk rock, but I think that's kind of the beauty of what I get from Chris is that I see that there's this bright, beautiful sunshine in the soul and outside he's got all the tattoos and the piercings and, you know, totally living the punk rock lifestyle. And that juxtaposition of authenticity is just a breath of fresh air, as you can probably hear me take a breath in. So please, please, please sit back and enjoy this interview with Chris Grasso. OMG, Chris Grasso. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me on your show. And I'm psyched we're finally able to connect after what's been a bit of a trial and error thing going on here. But that's life, right? Right. And is it just me? I know it's not just me, but have you experienced too, like just this year fucking sucked, (laughs) right? You know, yeah, it was kind of riding the line for a while for me, but especially at the end, it's like, I just want to remind you how much this year did suck. And so like right? last month, part of the reason why we've had to reschedule is I've lost, unfortunately, a number of friends this year. And mm. last month I lost two dear friends to an overdose who left behind mm. a God. one-year-old child and then a 15-year-old that I work with in a program he had left and he mm. overdosed and died. And then my dog of 14 years died. And then a week oh. or like a few weeks later, a pet mouse died. I mean, this is all in the span of like, <laughs> one month. So it's like, right. All right. 2018. I get it. Thanks a lot for the reminder. Right. Well, we are. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad we're in it together though. Wish that it wasn't quite this way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So let's get into it. So let's first have you tell the listeners who you are and what you do. I'm a guy. I like to watch horror movies. (laughs) I'm a dude. (laughs) Yeah. My favorite horror character is Michael Myers. I love The Simpsons. I love skateboarding. No, really, though, those are all true. (laughs) Yes. I always feel weird when people read my bio. But yeah, I mean, I've written some books. My main passion is working with really anyone who's on their healing journey. But I'm very fortunate since I live here in Connecticut that I get to do three workshops a month with a wonderful residential young people's 
mental health and healing facility mm. ages 13 to 20. But aside from that, I get to travel around the world and speak at conferences and festivals and also cover rad concerts for my website. So mm-hmm. people kind of, I guess, know me for mostly recovery and spirituality, even though I, I can't stand the word spirituality, to be totally honest. But really? that's just, well, we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah, that's my thing. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of what I'm known most for. And your podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what oh, I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's over on this guy Ram Dass's network. Right. Some no big deal. Sort of yeah. yeah. A couple people. <laughs> yeah. He's written a couple of books that are OK, I guess. Yeah. That's about it. I don't know. I feel weird, honestly, like talking about myself. So in a nutshell, that's kind of who I am, what I do. And I'm just a real big fucking weirdo, to be honest with you. And and I wouldn't have it any other way. Right. Like for Christmas, it's so funny. My fiance and I essentially just got each other a bunch of like toys and shit. Mm -hmm. I'm 40 years old and I'm opening up like Hellraiser figures and she got me tickets to go see Iron Maiden. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, man, as much as 20... 18 did suck. I did also get engaged and I got to like yeah, do it. Yeah, congrats. At, yeah, thank you. I mean, so good stuff happened. I can't totally complain. So there you go. That's this weirdo named Chris in a condensed nutshell. <laughs> well, you got a weirdo friend in me over here, so it's all good. That's why I'm psyched to do this show. Yay. On Christmas, I sat on my couch in a unicorn onesie eating popcorn. <laughs> It was great. <laughs> we totally would have hung out had we lived closer. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes. Next time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to have you on the show because, A, I love your podcast. B, I was reading while well, listening to Dead Set on Living. Yes, yes. And, I mean, Dead Set on Living essentially sounded like a lot like what I get to do on this show is just have awesome conversations with amazing people and learn about spirituality, addiction, recovery, and all things in between. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so right. I'm I'm glad you appreciated it. That was my third book. And that was the first time I took that approach, basically breaking each chapter down Mm -hmm. to cover a specific topic, not just about addiction and recovery, but healing in general, but to be able to talk to like Ram Dass and people like that. And people both in and out of quote unquote, the spiritual realm, Mm -hmm. getting multiple perspectives. Cause I feel like in my first two books, I got out pretty much everything I had to say in those books, though the second book came out in 2015. So here we are four years later, and obviously a lot can change in four years and a lot has changed for me in four years, Mm -hmm. but I'm much more interested now, instead of just me doing the writing and talking, like bringing as many voices into the conversation and perspectives as possible, Mm because there is no one right path or answer or fix or whatever for everyone. So that's why my podcast, I try to keep it really diverse. The books, I try to get diverse voices. I'm working on a new project that has an extremely diverse group of individuals. Oh, cool. Yeah. Anyways, I I don't know where I was going with that, but. That's okay. So (laughs) were you always a writer? Actually, not at all. Mm -hmm. It's really weird how it happened. I've never taken a class for writing. When I was actively drinking heavily and using drugs, I would journal a lot. Mm. But with the exception of that, I have no actual background in writing. I even dropped out of college. I was halfway through my two final courses to get my associate's in substance abuse counseling. And I was just Mm -hmm. not feeling it. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't what I want to do. So I dropped out. I started a website called the Indie Spiritualist where my vision, this was back in like 2010. I was looking for a breeding ground of not just like spiritual like teachers and their ideas, but 
I wanted a place that incorporated that and the punk rock and hardcore mm-hmm. and hip hop and metal bands and musicians I liked and actors and writers and I just couldn't find it. So I'm like, fuck it, DIY. I started it. And so that started to take off. And then I started writing for a few websites that accepted unsolicited material, not with any intention of writing a book. It was Mm. purely like, I just want to share a little bit about my experience and share many of the ways in which I have fallen. But more importantly, Mm -hmm. the ways I have gotten back up in the hopes that some people might read that and it may save them a lot of the pain and suffering I've gone through. And that stuff just continued to grow and bring more people to my website. And then Next thing I knew, there was this wonderful woman. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She had read some of my stuff and asked if I'd ever thought about writing a book. And I said, no, honestly. It was, yeah, it was the <laughs> farthest thing from my radar. Mm. And she's like, well, I'd like you to talk to my literary agent, you know, just to have a conversation. And I'm like, uh, okay. okay. And <laughs> so I look up this literary agent and I see like some of the people that she represents. And there is a number of like New York Times bestselling authors. So Of course, I'm feeling a little intimidated, like, Mm -hmm. what the hell? We have a conversation and really hit it off. And she's like, I really think you have a book in you based on the Mm. stuff she'd read. And I was like, all right, twist my arm. I mean, cool. I love reading. I never intended to write, but I literally have the words bookworm tattooed across my knuckles. So So I was like, all right, we'll give this thing a shot. And put a book proposal together, sent it out, got rejected by pretty much all 40 of the publishers I went to. And so we went back to the drawing board, took their feedback and kind of restructured it. And that ended up being my first book, Indie Spiritualist. And the funny thing is when we sent it out the second time, there were multiple publishers that wanted it. Of course. Right. So yeah, that was like a learning curve for me. And here I am three books later and working on a fourth, have a fifth and sixth in mind. And all three couldn't be farther from like diverse. Well, it sounds like you've really crafted a life for yourself that is really organic, right? Yes. Coming from addiction where it's all about like just getting the next fix and surviving if you even want to survive. And now even amongst a bad year, thriving And I'm curious, I know you've talked a lot about your addiction and recovery in your book, but was there something that like kind of finally like flipped a different switch for you that helped you get recovery in a new way that you hadn't before? Not particularly because it's still a day by day, to be honest. I mean, I drank earlier this year and it was interesting. I drank right around the time the book came out and really, oh yeah. I was a few years sober and I ended up having a very brief relapse, but it was a relapse nevertheless. And I remember it was really humbling because I came out of detox and I was scheduled to be on this Recovery 2.0 podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tommy Rosen. Yeah. Yeah. I've been on it a few times before and I let him know what had happened. And Mm -hmm. so I am out of detox for a couple of days and I'm still like, even after you leave, like you're still like in pretty rough shape. And I had a lot of anxiety. I was having panic attacks and He's like, look, I completely understand if you don't want to do this. I'm like, no, you know what? Like people need to know that this is the reality. Even people who write about this stuff and are known for being in recovery still fall. And so, I mean, I've had many times I've had like multiple years, five years, three years uh, over and over again. I would say literally 90% of the last 15 to 20 years since I came into recovery 
has been sober. It's mm-hmm. just like I, I have this pattern of relapse. Mm-hmm. And that's why, though, like if, you know, you go to meetings, often they'll say, if you have a year or more, raise your hand. Mm-hmm. If I have a year or more and they say that I don't raise my hand, I know I'm getting yeah. a little topic, but it's like, no, you know, no, no, I, know, I love this. All right, cool. Because like I'll go to a meeting and honestly, if I've slipped or had a relapse, I see those hands go up and it just makes me feel shittier. And I understand that yeah. people, they do it to show that quote unquote show the program works. works but right. And so I get it from that one hand. But being on the other end and having talked to a lot of people about it who have gone through relapses, they seem to have the same feeling like it hurts. So I get for a newcomer, why something I don't do. So now like, again, even when I've had multiple years, when people say, well, how long have you been sober? My answer is always today. Cause literally that's all I have. It doesn't matter. Like this is a lifelong thing I will live with. And I hope, and all I can do is hope and put the work in, but I hope that I never go back to that. But I'd be lying if I said it's not a realistic possibility. It is for anyone. I don't right. care. I mean, I know people that have been 15, 20, 25 years sober and yeah. have relapsed. Some of them have made it back. Some have died. And, right. you know, it's, it's just the nature of this beast. I really appreciate you saying that because I feel like being an addiction therapist, I see a lot of the advocates out there. And there's so many people that have one, two, three years and are just kind of putting themselves out as like poster children for recovery (laughs) and not really giving enough reverence to how easy it is to go back out again. Absolutely. And one of the other things that I tend to see with people, at least I see it happening a lot in Chicago, is people will get those one, two or three years and then stop doing the work. Right. And that's where like they become these crotchety old timers that are really kind of dry drunks, you know, preaching this gospel where you're like, I can see right through you. You're not walking the walk. So it's really, really refreshing to hear you just be like, yeah, I have a history of relapse and it's part of my story and no apologies for it. No, yeah, none at all. And that's why I never call myself a teacher because I am not. I am no poster boy for anything. Mm -hmm. I am literally, my fiance always makes fun of me, but I call myself an experience sharer because really to me, that's what I am. Just just because I've written books, that doesn't mean shit. And like, I'll always say, like I've said in talks, like Bukowski or Hunter Thompson, like they're writers to me. I love their work, Mm. but like they're universes away ahead of me. I like Mm-hmm. What I have going for me, I guess, is that I am raw and ragged and mm-hmm. I do not bullshit and I tell the truth and in a way that sincerely from my heart, my intention is always, always to try to help other people no matter what. Whereas, yeah, like you said, there are a lot of people, some, you know, with maybe a year or two, some who have a lot of time and mm-hmm. and they do. And even if it's not addiction, if it's just spiritually right. based, like, you know, like, right. I have the answers and this is how you do it and five quick steps to enlightenment and blah, blah, blah. No, that shit has never, ever resonated for me. Right. So I'm grateful to my punk rock and hardcore roots for that ever since I was like 13 years old. Yeah. Pisses me off when I see that, especially like in mental health. They'll be like three tips for, you know, curing depression. It's like, fuck you. That is not (laughs) how it works. Like it's so complex. And for you to try to boil it down into three easy steps is insulting and it's also dangerous. I think it's very misleading. And I've had people come to me and say, I've read all the self-help books. Like I've done all of the things. Why aren't I better? It's like, because this is 
bullshit. <laughs> like, yes. we really got to get down to the core, which I think it's often a spiritual issue. Oh, agreed. But you don't like the word spirituality, but well, let's talk uh, about that. Cer <laughs> in certain contexts, I get it. You know, yeah. we have to use words to describe things. I think just for me, it's like I've gotten jaded on that word just because, like I mentioned earlier, yeah, I do get to speak at a lot of these conferences with quote unquote, like, a-list spiritual teachers. And I am grateful for that because it's an audience that honestly, I otherwise probably wouldn't have connected with. And mm -hmm. I am always grateful to help anyone. It doesn't matter what your interests are. I don't care what you like, what's on the outside. To me, it really is about what's on the inside. Mm -hmm. But so much of this shit has gotten watered down. I mean, it's nothing yep. new. Like there has been spiritual materialism dating back to the 60s. One of my favorite books is from Chogyam Trungpa, who also is a very flawed individual, but mm -hmm. he wrote some incredibly important books on Buddhism and not that I'm Buddhist, but on spiritual materialism. And so anyways, it's just that I've gotten jaded and that word just conjures up like images of a lot of white people mm -hmm. dressed, you know, in a lot of mm -hmm. money and fancy ballrooms. Yeah. And it's like, they're there to quote unquote spiritually go deeper when to me, and I know this sounds judgmental, but honestly what it looks like is just a spiritualization of their egos. Yes. And again, I own it. It's my shit. It's just a word. I'm the one who's mm -hmm. putting like that meaning to it. So, you know, it just douches me out a bit to be completely honest. And that's why I've actually last year, this year and next year, I'm still speaking at some conferences, but I have significantly pulled back the number that I do. Mm. And I'm just focusing much more on the work I do with younger people, some projects that I'm working on that I'm really passionate about. And I do the other stuff just because it does help to have for your bio and publishers look at that shit. Right, and right. Endorsements like those are weird to me too. But I understand you have to play the game to a yeah. certain extent. Right. I play it as bare minimum as possible, which is why we're likely to never see my name on the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm okay mm -hmm. with that. I wouldn't argue it if it happened. But when you live authentically and when your passion yes. is more about the message than the marketing, which unfortunately is right. not the case with a lot of quote unquote spiritual teachers. Right. Yeah. You tend to get lost in the shuffle and that's all right. I believe that whoever's meant to find my work and read it and benefit from it will. And I don't care if I go speak in front of five people or 2000 I bring 110% of my heart into that message and I am grateful for whoever is there because it's exactly who's meant to be there. So that's the way I approach it at least. Yeah. And I hear a lot of humility in the way that you're speaking. And I think it can be difficult to achieve that level of humility when you do have success. And I wonder if part of that is because of your experience with relapse and you're like, hey, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just an everyman. It is hard to think highly of yourself when you have pissed yourself from drinking, when you've fallen mm -hmm. downstairs, when you've woken up in jail cells, when you've woken up in other states not knowing how you got there, mm -hmm. when you've woken up literally strapped down to hospital beds being like, what the fuck happened? Yeah, that'll really humble a person. So if nothing else, I am grateful for those experiences that I don't have to try to quote unquote be humble. And I don't think of right. myself as humble or not humble. I just am who I am. But I appreciate that I do often hear in people's feedback that there is a sense of humility, but it's not like I worked on becoming humble. It's right. like literally there was a sledgehammer hit over my head time <laughs> and time and time again. Uh -huh. And a lot of this shit was beat out of me. That and the fact that yeah. people have it twisted. Like just because you can find my books in Barnes and Noble and I might speak at a big conference, 
I live paycheck to paycheck. I live mm-hmm. in a very not small, but like it's not a fancy apartment with my fiance. We have neighbors upstairs that are loud and they annoy mm-hmm. me. They're nice people, but like you can hear everything that's going on. I have like mm-hmm. a decent car, but it's no baller car. Like I'm in debt. Mm-hmm. So people often look at that shit and think like, wow, they must have it made. No, right. man, I make less money than probably half, if not like 75% of your listeners. But that's okay because mm-hmm. when I do what I do, I don't feel like I'm working. I feel like yes. I'm living my purpose and I wouldn't trade that for the world. So Totally. Well, the other question I wanted to ask you was about authenticity because I get the question a lot like, oh, how do you get the courage to be so authentically you? And my answer is always, this is literally how I was wired. You can't yes. shut me down. Is that how you feel too? I couldn't agree more. You know, it's interesting that I think, sure, part of it is our experience, especially as children and teenagers, that is kind of imprinted on us. But each of us are born with our own unique set of us, you know, our genetics, how we're kind of going to grow up, the families we're born into. So I think part of it can be learned, of course. But I mean, ever since I was like six or seven, this is back in the eighties. Like I loved skateboarding and that was before mm-hmm. like skateboarding was, I have a still to this day I have my very first Tony Hawk board from 1986 hanging on my <laughs> wall here at the apartment. My I brother the, would be drooling. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, I mean, I have a Tony Hawk tattoo, like from that deck, I have a postcard I wrote to him in 1988. He wrote back and signed it. That's on my fridge. Like, so I'm doing this stuff like back when I'm a kid and I don't know what the hell's going on. The world is this big, huge, weird place. And then I become a teenager and the grunge movement's happening and I'm loving like Soundgarden. And then I'm introduced to punk and I just feel this deep resonance immediately with it. And so, yeah, I feel like it was just that was what was imprinted in me since birth. And I feel like that's how it's for most people. It doesn't mean I'm any better because I'm this way and someone who is imprinted, like be more inclined towards athletics or towards business or whatever. It's just, we're all our own unique individuals Mm -hmm. and right on. Like as long as, like I said earlier, the inside is one that has integrity and heart and compassion. I don't give a shit what you like or what you do just Mm -hmm. as long as you're not harming people. But to me, that's authentic. Like You don't have to have a bunch of piercings and tattoos to be authentic. Like that Mm -mm. to me, that just makes you a weird authentic person, but weird in a good way. (laughs) Right. Right. I feel like I get a lot of folks who are striving to be something that they might not authentically be. And that's part of the problem, right? Like if you like your fucking Hellraiser dolls and you're skateboarding (laughs) and you're like, that's what I like and I'm going to do that then do that. But so many people think that they're supposed to like a certain thing or like my husband is always fighting this belief that he's supposed to be outgoing in order to like yeah. be successful in just in the world as a human in general. And I'm like, yeah. dude, you don't have to be like, I am that for all of us. <laughs> you do one-on-one really well. Like you do that intimacy and or this is the other thing, because I've got, you saw my pink mohawk before we started. Love it. Yeah, it's red. And the comment I get most often is, I would never be brave enough to pull that off. And <laughs> that makes me so sad, because why the yeah. fuck not? What is getting yeah. in your way of doing whatever the fuck you want to do with your hair, which is like the most ephemeral thing on your body, you know? Yeah, 
I couldn't agree more. And that's why, like, I got my neck tattooed and my hands tattooed and I'm getting mm-hmm. my head tattooed in a couple of weeks. It's like, you know what? I don't want to live in a world where I can't be me in right. order to survive. I'm lucky to be in a position where I can do that stuff and still make a living. And that's what I'm interested in. So mm-hmm. I don't want to live by others' rules. I've never wanted to live by others' rules. And that made my high school experience hellacious being, (laughs) you know, this punk rock skateboarder Mm -hmm. in a very rural sports oriented town. But that also, again, that kind of built strength in me to really be true to myself. And it's funny as we're talking, I'm kind of like, I'm looking around my apartment and aside from literally, I see a picture of Maharaji who is Ram Dass's guru. I see a Kali statue I have. And aside from that, everything else that's just in my living room area, where I'm talking to you from, it's all like you walk in here and never believe the person that lives here writes about spirituality. <laughs> I mean, like seriously, the posters mm-hmm. on the wall are all like hardcore bands, horror movies, mm-hmm. all my horror toys, skateboarding. Oh, and the only other thing is, okay, if you look at my library, you will see a lot of spiritual books, but then you also see like a lot of occult books and mm-hmm. Bukowski and Klosterman and Polyanuk and the Necronomicon and shit. And that's the other thing, I guess, to go back to the word spirituality that bothers me is people have this image of what right. it's supposed to be and supposed to look like and supposed to sound like. And it's Zafus and, you know, yoga right. pants and quiet and oming. And yeah, that's all part of it. But if you're pigeonholing spirituality into just that, like a lot of people do, right. you are missing out on mm-hmm. so much, yep. so much, because to me, there is no line. There is nothing that is not spiritual. To me, I don't identify as any tradition, but I feel closest to Advaita, which is basically just a non-dual tradition. Hmm. And all the great wisdom traditions have their sects, like Zen and Buddhism. We mm-hmm. have mystic Christianity. You have Sufism and the Islam tradition, Kabbalah and Judaism, you know, and on and on. These are all kind of these non-dual tenets of mm-hmm. these wisdom traditions. And Advaita is one from the Vedanta Hindu tradition. But essentially it's saying all literally is consciousness. In the Christian tradition, you have pantheism, which is saying everything is in God just as God is in everything. And I know that's Mm -hmm. a loaded word, so that's why I don't often use it. Yeah. So I say that just to say, like, I have had incredible, and I've written about this in other books, or my first two books, truly, like, incredibly beautiful interconnected, non-dual. Chris has left the building. It Mm. is all just one, not to sound like a hippie, but very real. This is just a dance of consciousness at a fucking Slayer concert. Like upside down crosses out of their amps, like flames shooting. They're playing raining blood. And like, literally I have this transcendent, like Samadhi experience. That's just like absolutely gorgeous. And that is because I don't pigeonhole spirituality. To me, it's all that there is. And again, it's just a word. But anyways, I'm going to step off my soapbox now and and let you speak and turn this back over to you. (laughs) No, I love it because what I hear in that, like the words that are coming to me are like freedom, release, and at the same time, like this interconnectedness and this flow. And I don't want to use the word aim because I feel like that's like counterintuitive to the whole spiritual thing. But (laughs) without a better word for it, that is the aim of Mm -hmm. spirituality is to experience that oneness and that interconnectedness and the way that you get there. Like, who gives a fuck? Yeah. If it's meant to happen, it's going to happen. You know, like 
practices are great. They are super important. I do agree with that. I have a meditation practice. I do yoga periodically. I exercise. You know, I take care of myself. I read, et cetera. But at the end of the day, again, according to at least a tradition that I deeply resonate with the most, essentially says if it's going to happen and it will happen eventually, whether it's this lifetime or not, and that's a whole right. other podcast probably. But yeah, like Ram Das would say, just do your best to anchor into this non-partial witnessing awareness. Mm-hmm. So in my case, it'd be like that consciousness that's watching Chris go about his day and I have mm-hmm. a reaction to something. But if I'm in this place of witnessing awareness, instead of identifying with that reaction, it's more of like an impartial Oh, that's interesting. Look at how Chris is reacting to this situation or, right. you know, Chris is being a whiny little bitch right now. And right. you know, it's, like, it's not personal anymore. Not to say that that's how I live. Like on a good day, I'm in and out right. of that. So I don't know. It's just like, man, just do what you can do. Be the best person you can be. Practice whatever you feel called to practice. Don't practice what you don't feel called to practice. Right. Just be a good fucking human being. Exactly. Just don't be a dick. Yes, please. Like I posted this meme a million times of Moses holding the two commandments. One says, be cool. And the other says, don't be an asshole. And that's it, man. That's the two most important commandments as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to that witnessing awareness because that's something that I especially talk to people in recovery about because it behooves one to develop that in order to stave off relapse, right? Because then if you have that conscious observer, you're like, oh, look at Chris having that craving or that trigger or whatever. And I ask people this all the time. How did you develop that? And the answer I get over and over is like meditation is almost the only way to develop that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the funny thing. A lot of people, you know, as I'm sure you're quite aware, are very adverse to meditation. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can never do that. Right. And I get it. It can be a kind of scary thing to actually, you mean you want me to sit quietly with myself? my own brain? Yeah. Like (laughs) society Mm -hmm. teaches us that completely opposite thing. Like, no, turn on the TV, numb yourself, eat the ice cream, take the drugs, do whatever. That is certainly, I think, the most natural way to do it. For some people, it just starts to happen. Yeah, I've read many books from people who are like, I had zero interest in spirituality. And like Eckhart Tolle, for example, you know, like one day dude was just like, who is this other voice that's talking to who? And, you know, and then Mm -hmm. he had this experience just like Ramana Maharshi as a teenager, same thing. I think he was like 16 or 17, felt like he was about to die. Literally, it was just like he accepted it. And then like he completely woke up. And so there are other ways. But yeah, I feel like meditation because it rewires your brain essentially. And it's beautiful. And meditation Again, a lot of people think, oh, I have to sit in the cushion and do that circle thing with my fingers and ohm and, yep, you can certainly do that. But Mm -hmm. there are a million and one ways to meditate and meditation is not just happening when you're on the cushion. It is literally happening all day. Anytime you're aware of what is going on, that is a form of meditation, of mindfulness. You're there in the moment. So you can be meditating while at work, while at a concert, while driving, while standing in line at the grocery store. Or while sitting on a cushion fucking oming. It doesn't matter. So the witnessing awareness, it's tricky too because there's often talk of like dissolving the ego. But when we're using our own volition, it's basically ego against ego. So it's like the Mm -hmm. hamster in the wheel just spinning itself. Mm -hmm. So that's when I say things like, you know, just chill out. And like if it's going to happen, let it happen. But practices are beneficial in the sense I love this image that there's a teacher named Wayne Lickerman. And the funny thing is he is in recovery. Like he hmm. was this raging drug addict and alcoholic and 
he also is from the Advaita lineage and he mm. uses the pendulum as an example. Yeah. And so, you know, you have your fulcrum, which is that straight line up and down that the pendulum then swings back and forth across mm -hmm. and the pendulum swings forming kind of like a triangle. And the ball is at the bottom of the pendulum. So when it's at the end, it swings like all the way to one side, then all the way to the other. The example he gives is when you incorporate whatever practices resonate for you, because some people are like, well, if it's going to happen, then why do I bother doing anything? And right. sure, you, you could take that approach. But the one thing that I love this example is because he says, the more you do practice, the more you meditate, the more you do whatever, the ball at the bottom of the pendulum, it kind of moves up the pendulum so that yeah. it's not swinging all the way to one side or to the other. It's still swinging back and forth, but not as far. Yeah. So what he means by that is the emotions will still happen, but they have less of an impact and a pull on you. And it makes it much easier for you to come from a more skillful place exactly. rather than a reactionary place. So I love that example. And I'll never forget the first time I read that. I'm like, oh, yeah, love it. And that's totally my personal experience because I've always struggled with overwhelming emotions. Like I feel all the feelings. And, yeah. <laughs> and so now having meditated, I'm almost at a thousand days in a row. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> Whoa, seriously, that's amazing. <laughs> that's such the American dream, right? Like I've got the fucking app counting all the days, but it does make me feel good. But definitely my experience is like when I have that overwhelming emotion, I'm like, okay, I know this is going to pass. Whereas before I would think, no, this is the end of the world and I have to act out whatever these things are. And yeah, as yeah. a result, I find it has made my life way less dramatic because I'm not acting from that dramatic place. And so I don't have then the consequences that come from those dramatic actions. Right. And right. I think, you know, even though I don't myself have a chemical addiction, that's a piece that I think I really relate to with my clients because that's the core of it, Right. Oh, exactly. And I like that you said that even though you don't have the chemical addiction, because as I tried to write about in Dead Set, whether it's substances or not, it's mm -hmm. not really, I mean, like the drugs and the alcohol, they're just a symptom. Yep. It's more of that obsessive compulsive thought disorder, right. not saying that everyone has that, but to a certain extent, we all have yeah. some kind of addiction, yes. if none other than thinking. Right. Go ahead and try and control your thinking for a minute mm -hmm. and then tell me you're not addicted to something. Exactly. Well, that's why I go to fucking Al-Anon, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah, right? And literally that's what they say our disease is, is thinking. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. And I know there's a lot of dogma in the 12-step traditions and a lot of it does turn me off. Like mm -hmm. you said, and there's a lot of crotchety. There can be a lot yeah, of crotchety people. I like to go to younger people's meetings because I don't see that as much. But I've talked to a lot of people who've actually read through either the 12 steps or read AA's big book or NA's blue book and been like, wow, this is a really beneficial book. Like, even though I am not in recovery from substances, mm -hmm. like I see other ways that I act out in this manner in my life. And yeah. so even with me, for example, I might be, and that's another reason I feel weird saying like, yes, I'm sober X amount of days or years because sure, I might not be ingesting alcohol or drugs per se, but there will be times where I act out in that obsessive compulsive way with food, yes. unhealthy food, just eat and eat. And like, mm -hmm. it's completely an addiction. It's just, instead mm -hmm. of taking that drink or drug, I'm doing the same exact thing, but with food. So it's important yeah. for people to understand that the drugs and alcohol aren't the problem. It really is the brain disorder. 
And that's where it stems from. And that's why it's not a moral deficiency or right. people are just weak and mm-hmm. bullshit. And I'm glad to see that's a stigma that's starting to shift a bit. Yeah. And it's sad to me that it's really taken this opioid epidemic particularly amongst young people for mm-hmm. adults and parents to start to wake the fuck up and recognize, holy shit, there's a real problem. Well, right. yeah, there's been a real problem for a long time. And it bums me out that it had to take it hitting the suburbs and mm, rich families. People. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But fuck it, man. I mean, at least now it's getting, I was going to say the attention it deserves. I mean, right. I feel like there can always be more attention and more being done, but as they say in the rooms, progress, not perfection. So mm-hmm. at least I feel like we're starting to head in a better direction. And I feel like consciousness has so much to do with this because denial is a huge part of the disease, not just with the person who might be using, but with the families. Oh, yes. That's one of my biggest struggles is watching somebody I know trying to do recovery as best as they possibly can. And they've got a family who is not only not supportive, but potentially thwarting their efforts because they don't believe it's a disease or because they think this person is just an asshole. And it's like, if everyone were able to take their own shit off and truly have empathy for the person right in front of them, we wouldn't have any stigma. Couldn't agree more. And working with the amount of teenagers that I do, that's the recurring theme I hear all the time. And I went through that too myself. Like my parents didn't understand in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of the lucky ones where my parents and my brother, they took the time. It took them several Mm -hmm. years, but they finally got to that place where they did take the time to learn about what I was living with. And they recognized I wasn't just a shitty person sometimes. I really have an illness. And okay, let me learn about how I can work more skillfully with this rather than shame and guilt them and yell at them frustrated. Let me learn how to do my best one, to set boundaries, but also to love them into healing when they're ready because the right. person has to be ready. You can't force well-being or recovery, again, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever, you can't force that on anyone. The person has mm-hmm. to be ready. Sure, you can send them to jail or if you're a parent, yeah. you could send them into a residential program. And a lot of the teens I work with, to be honest, they are just kind of there and they do their time and it might be a month or two months later and I see them back again. It's like, Hey, what happened? Oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But my response is always, I'm so glad you made it back. Like, and I give them a hug because a lot of people go out and they die and they die. They're dying at increasingly younger ages and it's awful and it's Mm -hmm. so completely unnecessary too. So, yeah. Well, that's a good segue into the question about whether or not the work you do makes you a healer. Ah, interesting. <laughs> I have a uh, good sigh, good sigh. I don't, like I said, aside from my cop out of saying I'm an experienced sharer, I don't like to stick any label or idea to myself. I think it would be fair if someone said that about me, because I guess in a way, I do help people in their healing journeys. And Mm -hmm. some of the, (laughs) funny enough, some of the workshops I teach are called healing through adversity. But I'm not like a healer in the sense of like John of God, who another fucking spiritual scandal that just blew up. Oh, really? Ooh, I haven't read about that yet. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but there's another one. Oh, boy. But I'm not a healer in the sense of like someone comes to me and I lay hands or I have crystals or I do this or that. No, like, What I try to do is literally 
drop any facade and just meet whoever, whether it's one person or a group of people, meet them where they're at, listen to them and have a conversation. When I do workshops, I don't go in there with a plan of what I'm going to do. I walk in there and I start out, I try to make them very interactive. I ask people their names, where they're from and what brought them there. And once I've heard all of that, that's where I'm like, all right, I think this is a direction that organically needs to happen Mm -hmm. or will be of most benefit to the people here today. And that's how I try to approach everything I do. Even when I give talks, like I might have an idea or a loose Mm -hmm. outline, but I just try to come from the heart and do my best that way. Because again, if I'm boxing myself into, okay, I need to say this, or I need to teach X, Y, and Z practices. Well, if I get into the room, not knowing who's going to be there and that's not what they need, that's not fair to them. So I know that's a bit of a side note, but yeah, to go back to the healer thing, yeah, like I said, I just, <laughs> I just, I don't know. I'm looking at my Simpsons DVDs and my Freddy Krueger action figure, and mm-hmm. it's like I don't know that anyone could really call me a healer, but I am someone that comes from the heart and sincerely does try to help other people in whatever way that I can. If you want to call that a healer, right on. If not, right yeah. on. There's a part of me that really wants to eradicate the idea of healer being this spiritual so-and-so who lays on hands and all that kind of stuff because what you do is healing and I I don't know why I just I really really want people to be able to own that word in an empowered way and not apologize for what they do you know and I don't hear you apologizing for it yeah after I ask this question over and over and over I start to get mad about it and want to fight about it and it's funny like I'm not necessarily married to that term for myself either, but it's because of the way that society has defined it that I think gets in our way of utilizing it properly. And I agree. And that's why going back to spirituality, like people attach their own meaning to these words and that's their right. There's, There's nothing wrong with that. But to me, words are just words. There's a wonderful book, A Course in Miracles, and it said, Mm -hmm. words are but symbols of symbols, thus they are twice removed from reality. And that's all they are, they're Mm -hmm. words, and we place so much meaning to them. So that's why I don't give a shit, you know, really, to be totally honest, like, Mm -hmm. about words. I understand that they can be very harmful. Absolutely, there are some words that are just absolutely wretched and shouldn't be uttered. But to me, again, they are simply words. I have many a gay friend and I in high school used to fight when people would call other people that. But let me say just as an example, the word fag, which I am not okay with that word at all. Here, it is a very derogatory term, which Mm -hmm. it absolutely should be. But if you go over to Europe, it means a cigarette. So Mm -hmm. again, it's like we have these words and different cultures have different meanings. And it's just, I don't know. That's why I don't get attached. I call myself an equal opportunity offender. So meaning like... (laughs) Like yeah. nothing's really off limits to me. Like I won't right. say that word or other racial slurs like those aren't OK to me. But right. as far as like laughing at inappropriate things, like I laugh at so much inappropriate shit. But yeah, I'm just as willing to throw myself under the bus as quickly like right. and make fun of myself in any way possible, because that's part of it. If I can't laugh at myself and not take myself with a grain of salt, then what the mm-hmm. fuck? What's right. the point? Exactly. Oh, and that goes back to the humility, because I think. When we have a really intact ego strength from a psychological perspective, it's easier to not take things personally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And here we are. Right? Yucking it up. Yucking it up. (laughs) We've just been talking about all the amazing things I hadn't asked 
all my questions, but well, that's a sign to me of a good podcast, right? Yeah, we're just like going, but I really do want to hear your thoughts on wounded healer. Wounded healer, yeah. I guess oddly enough, even though I just railed against like <laughs> words, like I come to mind because I am mm-hmm. a very wounded individual. We all are, mm-hmm. but I think that we have to be careful in that woundedness. I yeah. think it was Caroline Meese, and I might be mistaken, but I think it was her. She created the term woundology which essentially is stating people get so identified with their wounds that they live from that place. And yes. Coming like a victim mentality. Yes. So yeah, it's something very, again, a fine line to walk. Mm-hmm. We are all wounded beings. There's none among us who is not wounded in one way, shape or form. I mean, I've physically got the scars from suicide attempts and cutting. Mm-hmm. I've emotionally and mentally got the scars of things I have gone through, things I put other people through. I have the spiritual scars of that dark night of the soul. Um, I've got all of it. And that shit I will forever live with. So I don't think there's any such thing as a fully healed person, even if Mm -hmm. you reach that state of quote unquote enlightenment where the ego nature, the Mm -hmm. Chris drops off. It doesn't mean like you still don't have your human attributes. You'll still have your likes, your don't likes, and you still experience pain. Like Ramana Maharshi got cancer. He felt pain. Buddha felt pain. Mm -hmm. Christ on the cross is yelling out to God, why Mm -hmm. have you forsaken me? I guarantee you those nails hurt that motherfucker's hands when they were going through. (laughs) If if that even did happen, but there's no way a dude's getting nails and he's just like, yeah, it's all good, man. Right, right. No, that shit had to hurt, so I don't care. Mm -hmm. So that's my thoughts. I probably went a completely different way than maybe you intended us to, but. I don't care. I think it's great. And I. We're running out of time. I'm like, oh, God, I just want to keep talking to you. But I did love that you mentioned that woundology and like over identifying because that can be another thing that I see in the program is people really clinging to that. I'm an addict. And so then that's almost an excuse for bad behavior rather than pushing oneself to work through the wound instead of just from it. That reminds me, I was actually doing one of my workshops yesterday with the teenagers and we were talking about identities and, and authenticity and these young adults always, always just amaze me with how in touch and brilliant they really are. And yeah. And one of them was saying, we weren't talking about woundology, but we were talking about the way in which adults can act that actually pushes them further into their self-destructive mm-hmm. behaviors. And one of them was talking about how like I actually started identifying with my diagnosis. And then I was using that as an excuse because I believe that I was my depression and my addiction. And so that's the place I started living from. And Mm -hmm. that was very destructive for me. And it was like a light bulb went off for me because one, I could relate. I did that too, Mm -hmm. but I've never really thought of it like from that way. Like, yes, I've thought about it. I do have trouble saying I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic at meetings because I'm more than that. I understand it's a sign of like surrender. I get that. But at the same time, I kind of have a problem with that. And the nuance is lost in 12 step very often, but go on. (laughs) It is. No, but yeah, just to like, just again, to reiterate, like it really took me hearing that from this, I think he was like 15, this young teenage Mm -hmm. boy, like how intelligent and how in tune with himself is he to know, like, yes, I live with depression and I live with substance abuse, but I am not just my diagnosis. And I recognized that I was living from a place where I believe that's all I was. So yeah, yeah, I I was floored when he said that in the best possible way, of course. I do find that the things that stick with me the longest often I've learned from my clients. Oh, yeah, 100%. I will tell them too, especially Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these teens. Like, I'm like, look, 
I'll be honest. I usually learn more from you than you're probably going to learn from me. Let me yep. just throw that out there. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I'm so, so grateful that I am able to do that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. That said, every time I leave there, it's like a split right down the middle of me. I am equal parts heart filled yeah. and equal parts heartbroken because yeah. there is no way anyone that feels feelings, especially like it sounds like you and I, who are mm -hmm. very sensitive people, when you see these deep cuts on like, you know, 13, 14 year old girls arms, like yeah. real deep, or you hear the 14 year old boy talking about his third suicide attempt and not a cry for help, but legit right, right. lucky to be alive suicide attempt. There's no way I'm walking out of there without part of my inside just like yeah, really hearing that. Yeah. And, and I'm not the person who can leave that shit at the door. I never have yeah. been. And part of me is grateful for that. Part of me also wishes I could find a better line or boundary to draw. But to this point, I turned 40 this year, which is nothing short of a miracle. And mm -hmm. I still haven't found it. I don't know if I ever will, but I'm just grateful that I'm still alive and able to do the work I'm doing. So. And I'm so grateful that you shared your time with me today. Oh, and vice versa. It's an honor to have had this conversation and I'll continue my authentic honesty I do a lot of podcasts and I'm grateful to do every single one I do. But oh. when it's the same goddamn questions over and over, it does get a little tiring. And this was anything but that. So my heartfelt and sincere thanks to you for keeping it really real and for putting this show out into the world. I Thank wish we you. had a million more of these. So a lot of respect to you, Sarah. Thank you, Chris. Yes. And you will have to come on my show and return the favor to me so we can shake things up over in Ram Dass's uh, yes! network. Oh, my God. I would love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll set that up for the new year for oh, sure. Oh, so cool. Well, thanks again. Is there anything else that you want to share before we close up? Anything? No, I, I don't plug shit. I'm just me. Okay. If anyone gives a shit, you can Google me. If not, like, <laughs> cool, man. If you even listen to three right. minutes of this, thanks. Right. That's all I've got to say. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, Chris, you're my new best friend. I feel like that happens every time I interview a new person, but I just love doing this podcast and I am just so excited to meet some really amazing people and have amazing conversations. So thank you so much to Chris Grasso for being a guest on the podcast today. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz from the Creative Imposter Studios for their amazing editing. Thank you to Liam O'Donnell for the wonderful album art photo and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find out more about Chris Grasso, you can find him on our website, which is www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And you can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much. Until next time. Bye-bye.